RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Have you heard of Peter Goodsha? He is a Danish physician, medical researcher, former leader of the Nordic Cochrane Center in Copenhagen, Denmark. He's co-founder or was of the Cochrane Collaboration. I suppose he still is and has written numerous reviews for the organization. His membership in Cochrane was terminated by its governing board of trustees on the 25th of September 2018. So he leads it and then he is terminated by its board. And uh, Peter Goodshirt joins us now from Copenhagen, Peter, is it? Yes, that's true. In a room like me, no, no real difference. It's just uh, the other side of the, I suppose if we drilled through, it might come up in your room somewhere. Anyway, so thank you for joining us. This seems kind of weird. You you are the former leader of the Cochrane Centre and then you're terminated. What happened there? First of all, I created the biggest Cochrane Centre in the world and I create and I contributed very much to Cochrane. Then I was elected for the governing board because uh, Cochrane went in the wrong direction after it had employed a journalist as its CEO who did not understand what science and scientific freedom is about. So people had confidence that I could change the the direction of travel. But what happened was that uh, one of the worst show trials ever in academic academia was carried out against me. And I was thrown out of the board and Cochrane and four board members uh, resigned in protest over this. And it was widely condemned in uh, medical journals, Nature, Science, BMJ, Lancet, and so on, because there was no good reason to to kick me out. It was, in essence, a power struggle. And uh, now the CEO suddenly left in the middle of a month, and Cochrane is today in ruins because the major funder, which is in the UK, has stopped all funding just three weeks ago of the UK-based Cochrane review groups. So it's it's in a state of big cares, Cochrane. They should have listened to me, but instead they got rid of me. So the first word I took notice of there was journalist. I mean, I took notice of all the words, but journalist. You, you've said yes. a journalist. Ca- uh, what is it about journalists? <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, a a scientific organization like Cochrane should never have chosen a non-scientist as the leader. That's what I tried to say. No, I know, but uh, people are very critical of journalists. I was just drawing attention to that. But why would they do that? Why would they do that? Why would they choose somebody who had, you know, no knowledge, in-depth knowledge in that area to lead an institution like that? I have no idea, and it was criticized right from the beginning, for example, in the Canadian Medical Journal. And it was a total disaster when when the major British funder announced that they would cut funding to Cochrane. He said that the writing had been on the wall for eight years. And guess what? This was exactly the eight years when the new CEO had uh, sailed Cochrane towards the Titanic iceberg. <laughs> and eventually sunk, obviously. Yes. And did everybody get to the lifeboats? <laughs> no. No, no. They have lost their job now in the UK. 
uh, because they don't have the funding they need. Okay, so what does that say about censorship? I mean, ultimately, well, that's like being cancelled. You were you were cancelled, right? Well, yeah, you could say that, and uh, it says something about how ugly censorship is, because uh, I had criticised psychiatry a lot. And psychiatrists complained to the CEO about me, and instead of supporting me because my criticism was scientifically well-founded, he just threw me under the bus. And now that we are going to talk about COVID-19 vaccines today, let me say that our big review, which I did together with Marianne Dimasi from Adelaide, we have been unable to publish this in a medical journal. So we, we have seen... Uh, quite a lot of censorship during the COVID-19 pandemic, not only in social media, but also in major journals. So on what basis is no one publishing? What is the, is there an argument that they come up with, or is it just like, sorry, we, we don't want to talk with you, or, or, or what do they say? Oh, of course, they have had various arguments, and I have counter-argued and told them that you are not correct. We actually did a good uh, review, which is very informative and relevant. We did our best, so why not publish it so that people can read about the serious harms of the COVID-19 vaccines? There's an effort to stop people hearing about this. We see this here, you know, anecdotally, sort of comparable phenomenon, almost a lockstep. Would that be right to say that, do you think? Oh, we have seen a lot of uh, censorship during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. We have seen so much that I have written a whole book about it that I call The Chinese Virus Killed, Killed Millions, millions and Scientific fine. Freedom. So we're pretty certain that this virus came from the lab, right? I mean, that's, that's a, not an argument anymore. Would I be right in saying that? Oh, yes, sure. It, it, uh, it, it came out of a lab in Wuhan. Do you think it was a leak or deliberately spread? I'm pretty sure it was not deliberately spread. It was an accident. And these accidents happen all the time in such laboratories. We have had such leaks with dangerous microorganisms earlier in the world, also in China. And uh, I find it very likely that the virus was man-made, that it was manufactured, because the closest relatives to this virus uh, live 1,500 meters away from Wuhan in a cave where researchers from Wuhan, they went and collected feces from the bats in order to go home and make dangerous so-called gain-of-function experiments, where they turn a harmless virus into a dangerous one. So, in fact, they have played with fire. Why would people want to do that, do you think? They had the argument that it was good to be well prepared for a new pandemic by learning more about mutations and so on. And then, oops, we created one. Yeah, okay. And now everything starts to happen. So... What were your initial thoughts on how this would play out, given your previous experience and knowledge? Did you sort of like roadmap it, map it out, that it's probably going to be like this? And was it? Well, I did some research in the beginning, and 
my conclusion was similar to the one by John Ioannidis from Stanford University in California, that this new virus did not seem to be more dangerous, more lethal than some of the influenza pandemics that we have had. But the reason that it has killed so many people is that people were not immune against this likely man-made virus. Whereas if we have a new flu pandemic, there is some immunity already in the population. So we know that when there is no immunity against a virus, it's much more lethal than when there is immunity. We have seen that in measles pandemics, for example. And that would be a cue to the whole, it was man-made, because uh, otherwise, it, even if it was limited, it would have been in the environment for a long time. It would have been encountered by at least someone, and, and it would be in nature already, right? Well, if it had not been man-made, uh, it's more likely that we would have had some degree of immunity against it. So it might not have been so dangerous. Okay, so the virus is out. It starts spreading around the world, as you'd expect, given the modern convenience of jet travel, et cetera, especially out of China. A lot of um, airlines and flights coming out of China at all points in the world. We saw that. Then then how does that what, – what happens after that? There seemed to be a very quick ramp up to a kind of panic response. Yes, I have abbreviated the great – pandemic to the great panic, because this is really what happened. Uh, people panicked all over the world, and they introduced draconian lockdowns and uh, demanded everybody to wear face masks. And let's just discuss this, that briefly. Sweden was the only country that did not introduce these uh, lockdowns. It kept its society quite open. Uh, children continued to go to school and you didn't see people with face masks because this was not mandatory. And um, the randomized trials of face masks, both for COVID-19 and influenza-like illnesses, have shown that they very likely don't work. So it doesn't help to dress the whole world as bank robbers. And, um, and closing down schools and everything else um, there was a Norwegian researcher who wanted to study if, if it worked. So he wanted to randomize schools to closing down or not closing down. And then he was called crazy in the Norwegian media. So we have, we have avoided doing the trials that were necessary during this panic. And Sweden has received a good deal of criticism for keeping its country open. And they had quite many more COVID-19 deaths than Norway and Denmark in the beginning. So it looked very bad. But then uh, we kept, we uh, somehow uh, approached Sweden as time went by. And since it is quite unreliable to say if somebody died from COVID-19 or just with COVID-19, because so many were infected, then when you also consider that when you lock down a society, you increase mortality from other reasons. And why? Uh, an American cardiologist whom I know has written about this. 
that uh, they received far fewer people uh, with a suspicion, suspicion of myocardial infarction, a heart attack, and a stroke than usually. So some of these people were afraid of getting infected with COVID-19. So they stayed at home with their symptoms. And since the treatments we have are life-saving, this has increased the deaths from uh, heart attacks and strokes, no doubt. So what we should look at is total mortality. This is the only unbiased mortality measure we have. That's total mortality. And when you do that, for example, you take the average mortality during the last five years before COVID-19, and then you look at what happened during COVID-19, then you can calculate excess mortality. How many more people died because of the pandemic? And the Swedish results are really flabbergasting because they showed that Sweden is one of the best countries in the world. They have one of the lowest excess mortalities in the whole world. So I will conclude now that Sweden did the right thing. How come so many countries, in fact, uh, most of the globe, the Western world anyway, did the wrong thing? Well, easy. They panicked and and politicians want to show leadership so that they can get reelected. And you show readership, you show sorry, leadership by introducing various measures. You do something. If you don't do anything like in Sweden, because you say we don't know if it is beneficial or harmful, then you are weaker in a political sense. But in Sweden, they had great respect for the state epidemiologist who um, who had the guts, I think you call it, to um, continue uh, telling the government that since they didn't know, they shouldn't do anything. I understand the, the panic side of it, but, you know, there are professionals in medicine and surely they've trained to see things clearly with a clear eye and you know that if you get something wrong surely common sense tells you if you get something wrong in this situation it's not going to age well and there could be awesomely bad repercussions but that didn't seem to be enough uh, i didn't quite get you of course there are well, many I, they weren't thinking ahead i mean the political response we can understand career politicians they want to appeal to their voters they want to keep power but uh, the establishment around them advising them surely uh, thinks more clearly than that with more of a clear eye view on things. And they seem to have gone along with the panic as well, which kind of surprises a lot of people. Oh, uh, I can tell you something about this. For example, from the UK, uh, one of my colleagues, Tom Jefferson, has written articles where he says several people became experts overnight uh, because of this pandemic. So politicians primarily chose so-called experts that agreed with them so that they could say, that according to the experts, we do the right thing. There were lots of experts that did not agree with governmental measures, but they, they were not those who were asked. So uh, you might call this perhaps not censorship, but at least uh, 
some kind of selection that was unhealthy. Yeah, I think we saw that here and um, in our neighbouring country, Australia, the same thing. Experts who were actually put on a pedestal and became kind of like rock stars, to use a term. You know, they were in the culture, became very popular. The media, of course, um, really engaged with them. They became media darlings. And you could hear people reciting their lines so you have a conversation with somebody, you can you can hear them reciting the chief medical officer of health's lines on the TV from the night before. So that was very effective, wasn't it, for the political establishment to identify the friendly experts, call them experts, have that then amplified by the media, and then suddenly they're so believable. Oh, yes. In biology, we think inbreeding is very unhealthy because it leads to malformed babies. And uh, th this is somehow what happened here, that you, you heard the same experts say the same things all the time. And you shook your head and thought, oh, my goodness, but this is not correct. But you had very little chance of um, bringing your science and views forward because the media they uh, they just uh, behaved like microphone holders. They were not sufficiently critical. So they must have been, what, in a panic state as well? This is like uh, rippling out to to everyone. And they think they're doing good, but actually it's it's a big part of the problem, as it turns out. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then along with all that is data, 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 you know, the research and all of that. And we were told that um, this had been fully tested and, you know, that had gone through all the normal checks and, and, and processes that uh, a vaccine, traditional vaccine, in many people, many people's idea of what they are uh, would have gone through. And I think you have trials that go for years and years and years. But it turns out none of this really was done. And, and it kind of looks like scientific research on that basis has been well and truly corrupted. Has it been? You are right. And shall we talk about the vaccines now? Sure, we can get on to whatever you want. Oh, but it's very important to talk about the vaccines. Well, I, I was were... in a roundabout way staying with it because the vaccine push was supported by so-called research and data, and that turned out to be not true. That's absolutely correct. Um, I have studied this, and I have found that some of the main publications of the vaccines in New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet are simply not correct, that some serious or severe harms have been omitted from these publications. So it comes close to what we call fraud, actually. It's very bad. And... Um, I, I don't know where should I start here. I can start with the Pfizer vaccine, for example. Uh, the major uh, study in New England Journal of Medicine, it uh, did not really say something about the serious harms, but there was a supplement which very few people will ever see because then they need to find it and open it on the website there was a supplement that showed that double as many uh, experienced serious adverse events on the vaccine than on placebo. And I did a significant test on that, and it was very highly statistically significant. So by omitting this from the 
from the main text in the publication, I think this comes close to fraud, at least it is deeply misleading. And we also know that, for example, there are concrete patients who felt that they were seriously neurologically damaged by the Pfizer vaccine, but they never appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine article, even though one of them wrote to the editor-in-chief and told him, you need to publish a correction because my serious harm was omitted by Pfizer. It's not in your publication. And he refused to do that, which I consider editorial misconduct. Yeah, why would you refuse to do that? Because the reputations are at stake, ultimately. You'd think there would be an incentive to do the correct job. Well, a, a journal like New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet, they uh, are very prestigious. And their editors tend to think that they don't make errors. And they don't want to admit if, if what they publish is less correct than what people think and what the drug industry made it appear look like. And then they prefer to keep quiet when things pile up than to admit that they were wrong. Uh, this is some kind of um, uh, hybris. Yeah, and so people trust what they hear from those publications. Again, I've heard people mention them, you know, like, oh, it's said in the in this publication, that publication, that must be good. So yes. when it comes to, like you talk about Pfizer, they, they did have the information, but it was hard to find. Is that the tactic? So you put it out there so you can say, well, we did, we did put it out there, but make well, it exceedingly difficult to find so, so no one goes looking. Oh, there are other tactics that are even worse, where you delete... Uh, serious or severe harms altogether. They just don't exist. And I can give you an example of that as well. Um, when AstraZeneca published it, its trials in The Lancet, um, only 1% had severe adverse events on the vaccine. And there is a difference between serious and severe. I mentioned serious harms that were hidden by Pfizer and serious adverse events is about events that that are deadly or life-threatening or leads to hospitalization or prolongation of hospitalization or permanent or significant disability or birth defects. They are very serious. But then we also have severe harms, which are harms that it makes it impossible for you to live a normal life to do what you usually do. And in, in Lancet, only 1% uh, developed severe harms on the AstraZeneca vaccine. But when, when uh, the staff at the hospital where I had worked in Copenhagen started to get vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, all 14 staff members needed a sick leave. They became so ill from the vaccine that they needed to go home. That's 100% of the first 14 people. Wow. And a, a, a sick leave is, of course, a severe harm because you cannot work, you cannot function. So there you have a discrepancy between 1% in Lancet 
and 100% among people I, some of them I knew. And, and uh, I knew that they liked their job. They just didn't stay at home because they needed a little holiday. They were really ill. Uh, my own wife became seriously ill when she got the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, on the fourth day, she was slowly celebrated. We couldn't recognize her any longer. When we asked her a question, it took a long time before she answered. And she had high fever. And it's just unlikely that she got a virus infection at the same time as she was vaccinated. And other people have had similar symptoms. So this makes me suspect that fraud was involved in the official trial publications. So fraud is very serious because you're talking with uh, or about people's lives, as you've just described, and that's shocking what you just uh, said there uh, regarding your colleagues, especially 100%. I mean, that's every person. Okay, so when you're doing fraud, you know you're doing fraud and you're gambling with people's lives. It's, it's hard to believe that people would do that, isn't it? Well, not really. Um, I published a book 10 years ago called Deadly Medicines and Organized Crime, How Big Pharma Has Corrupted Healthcare. I was the first person in the world who called a spade for a spade. The business model of big pharma is organized crime. And um, this book has come out in 18 languages and received a prestigious prize at the British Medical Association. It's very well known. So I have documented in, in great detail that uh, drug companies uh, commit fraud all the time, both in their research and particularly in their marketing. And they don't care because only in the United States do they get substantial fines for this. But these fines, even though they are uh, billions of dollars, are tiny compared to how much they earn on the fraud. So therefore they continue their criminal activities because they pay off. So we, not, we just have to realize that this is how our drug industry is functioning. Well, this can't go on, can it? Because people are ultimately dying here and it's kind of a, well, I mean, murder comes into it. If you willfully know that people could die from your fraudulent activities, then that's incredibly serious, isn't it? Yes, it is very uh, serious. And I asked uh, one of the Danish uh, Muhammad uh, cartoonists to make a cartoon for me for this crime book, which comes at the last page in the book where two bikers, they, one of them say, I don't like him, Peter Goetcher, comparing us with the mafia. Uh, 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 no, comparing us with the drug industry or something like that. And then the other one says, why not? Oh, they kill many more people than we do. Competition. <laughs> okay, so so there's that. What about the the last line of defense for the public? And that would be their doctor. Where do they fit in in all of this machinery? Um. Doctors do what they are told. And uh, when the drug industry manipulates their research, doctors will do a lot of harm 
unknowingly, I documented in my book and in later research that our drugs are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. Third leading? So the third leading cause of death, our drugs. So our prescription drugs, they kill many, many more millions of people than the COVID-19 pandemic will ever achieve. And yet the whole world panicked when the pandemic came around, but no one raises an eyebrow that people who take drugs that they, in many cases, don't really need, they are killed by them. Something needs to be done here. But again, doctors, those smart people, they've you know trained for many years to get to where they are. Many have seen lots of patients, you know, thousands of patients. You'd think they'd get some kind of gut feel for what works, what doesn't, what's believable what's not, you know, credibility and all of that, but it doesn't seem to have occurred. Well, you're saying it's not only this, but particularly in this case. Well, um, doctors' clinical practice is very misleading, um, unfortunately. Uh, for example, one of the big killers are uh, arthritis drugs like uh, uh, ibuprofen and naproxen and, and these drugs. And they kill people by gastric ulcers and by myocardial infarctions, by heart attacks. And many of these people didn't need the drugs because they get them in addition to paracetamol when they have pain. But to use two drugs instead of one doesn't really help more than just paracetamol in almost all cases. So these drugs are mostly given to people who should not have received them. And when somebody gets a heart attack and dies, uh, the family doctor will never know that, oops, the arthritis drug killed my patient because many people die from heart attacks anyhow. So you cannot use your clinical experience to become wiser. You don't see the death you are causing. But with a new kind of technology of vaccine, can we even use that word vaccine? Is yeah, that, why not? No, but is it actually a vaccine as we know it? Because it seems to me that one of the words used in all of this to placate people's questions, resistance to taking it, is that they thought it was, in the classic sense, a vaccine. Well, I, I believe it is, uh, in a classic sense, a vaccine. It's just uh, the mRNA uh, vaccines are a new way of producing vaccines. But the whole idea with vaccines is to create immunity against a microorganism. And this is exactly what the COVID-19 vaccines are doing. So they are vaccines. Are they working as such, though? Because I know plenty of people have taken all their vaccines and, you know, they're on their third or fourth COVID infection now or whatever. So oh, well, um, how they work is another matter. They are vaccines. And um, in the beginning, it looked like uh, they were 95% effective. But then uh, the virus mutates all the time. So it has turned out that they were more about only 50% effective, which make, makes these vaccines rather poor vaccines. Because if you get vaccinated against measles or smallpox, it is hugely effective. But that's not the case for COVID-19 vaccines. So they are not very effective. And uh, 
now that the authorities recommend booster doses, more and more doses, even though you have been vaccinated twice, uh, we conclude in our review that this is harmful, that uh, you get so little benefit out of that, that compared to the vaccine harms, the overall conclusion is that it is harmful to put two booster upon booster to people and also harmful to vaccinate children because their risk of getting seriously harmed by the infection is very low. But uh, when you vaccinate them, uh, some of them will, for example, develop myocarditis, which is inflammation in the heart muscle. And uh, when that happens, one to two youngsters out of 200 will die. So, so the idea of vaccinating children in order to protect the elderly is very wrong from a scientific perspective because they are more harmed than they benefit from the vaccine. But they, it is also very wrong from an ethical perspective that you are not allowed to use a group of people and harm them in order to benefit other people. So the whole idea from public health authorities that now our children must get vaccinated to protect the elderly has been totally wrong, both ethically and scientifically all the time. And yet here in New Zealand, the latest booster is being promoted through all the media, through lots of advertising. You know, people are endorsing it. We've got the former Director General of Health, um, Sir Ashley Bloomfield, who's only recently resigned, also pushing it hard just in the last week. The train rolls on. I um, I don't have words for this. Uh, I believe these are human rights violations to such a degree that I have never thought that I would live long enough to experience this. The COVID-19 panic has in many countries introduced almost a kind of dictatorship that those who have the power, they can do whatever they want and everybody just have to comply. I mean, if you don't want to get vaccinated because you have been seriously harmed by some other vaccine you have received, then in the United States, you will get fired, for example, if you refuse to get vaccinated. And and Djokovic, the world's number one in tennis, was not allowed to go to Australia to play the Australian Open because he refused to get vaccinated. Uh, it, this is just sad. Uh, of course, I think the vaccines do something good, the COVID-19 vaccines, um, but not as much as we are believed to think. Well, all I can say is I haven't had it. Um, and um, people around me who have have been way sicker than me, Peter, way sicker than me over the period of time. How do you explain that? How do I explain that? Oh, I can give you the example from my own family. Um, my wife and I were invited to a wedding in Sweden last summer in June, and we had both been vaccinated twice with the Pfizer vaccine. Then we went to the wedding, and for the first time, during the whole pandemic, we lived totally normally. I hugged the bride who is very pretty and whom I knew. 
And we hugged other people and we had great fun throughout a couple of days. Then we went home and a lot of us got terribly sick, even though we had all been vaccinated. We got COVID-19. So, so you see, and this is another group that should not be vaccinated. If you have already had COVID-19, you should not get vaccinated because you are likely to be more harmed than, than getting any benefit out of it. Yeah, well, a lot of people have had it um, who haven't taken the vaccine and have kind of relied on natural immunity, but that's been downplayed. In fact, it's been sort of demonised or omitted, it's probably a better way of putting it, from any of the public discussion or health information. It's not been rated at all, which doesn't make common sense to a lot of people. Would that be right? There is not much common sense that is allowed to come out uh, about uh, COVID-19, I'm afraid. All right. Yeah. I will say another thing that... um, I know so much about drug harms that uh, even at my high age, I'm 73 now, I had decided not to get vaccinated because these vaccine trials had been done in a rush and we had no idea what the serious harms and long-term harms were of the vaccines. So I felt I knew too little. So I didn't want to get vaccinated, even though I am, in my age, I'm in that risk group where people actually die, uh, may die from COVID-19. But I decided that. But then the government made it so difficult for me that they didn't mandate my vaccination, but my life became incredibly difficult if I didn't get vaccinated. You know, uh, that I there were, were things I was not allowed to do and I couldn't travel and all that sort of thing. So I gave in and got two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, and luckily I didn't get any side effects. Okay, well, that's um, that's lucky for you. Um, now, I've watched a video of yours um, before this interview, just to you know get an idea of what you're all about, and it was called Death of a Whistleblower. And I'm just wondering, the part that whistleblowers have obviously played throughout, but particularly at this time, it's a very risky thing to do, isn't it? It can completely destroy someone's career, completely. Have you had experiences of whistleblowers in the situation? Who are some of them? And what were the consequences they faced? I have lots of examples, but some of the stories have been so painful that out of respect for my friends, I have decided not to talk about them. But I can tell you about my own story that Psychiatry was the main reason, and also that I threatened the position of the CEO that made him decide that I needed to be kicked out. But when that decision had been made uh, and the show trial was planned, uh, Cochrane published a review of the HPV vaccines. And uh, Tom Jefferson and I and others Uh, we had access to the clinical study reports submitted to the European Medicines Agency, which are thousands of pages and far more reliable than what the companies have published in New England Journal and other uh, journals. So we criticized the Cochrane Review because it was not well done and it had left out many patients, actually. And... uh, 
that was the final straw that broke the camel's back, that this was considered a very prestigious review. And we criticized this in, in another journal. So we criticized our colleagues, but that's what science should be about. You should criticize even your friends if you disagree with their science. And we had our own data where we published later on that uh, the HPV vaccines increase serious neurological harms significantly. We could document this, but this was not documented in the Cochrane Review because it built mainly on published trial reports, which, as you know, uh, have too few harms in them. So um, that was also seen as something you don't do in Cochrane. You don't criticize your colleagues, but if you don't do that, then why have a scientific organization? It should stop. It seems that people have forgotten what science is, fundamentally. Yes, I agree. Science is not about consensus. It's the opposite of consensus. And those scientists who in the beginning were heavily criticized by everybody else because they went on a path where no one had, had been before, they have time and again proved to be the most excellent scientists we have that dared to go against the grain and find something totally unexpected. We have seen this happen in the story of science over many hundreds of years. So it's absolutely horrible to have an organization like Cochrane, where I was told that I was not allowed to criticize my colleagues, only internally, but not in public. That's not science. So it's all about the image, the corporate image that's being projected is really the important thing for some of these uh, organizations and institutions. It's only the image. Is that correct? Unfortunately, that's my conclusion as well. Uh, so after I was expelled from Cochrane, some people have liked and likened uh, Cochrane to the drug industry. And the editor of the British Medical Journal wrote that the conflict between me and the CEO likely had something to do about how close can you get to the drug industry without getting too close. Because right. Cochrane wanted to please those who have the power. And who have the power? The politicians and the drug industry. Well, it's interesting you say that because you just reminded me of uh, something that happened here about a year ago when, or maybe just a, a little longer than that, maybe a year and a half ago, when there was a leak of information here in New Zealand which showed what New Zealand government were paying per dose for the Pfizer vaccine. And it was $36. I remember that clearly. And of course, it was quite a story at the time because it was a, supposed to be a confidential agreement and contract that no one is ever allowed to see. You might want to comment on that. That probably is something you've heard of before. But uh, the minister in charge of the COVID response at the time, who is now the prime minister, said in response to a question, well, you know, is there any problem with this this leak? And he said, and I remember the quote, that he was worried what Pfizer would think of us. Now, why would he say that? <laughs> oh, this is this is ludicrous. We have had the same discussion in Europe, where uh, the European Commission 
secretly negotiated with the vaccine companies about what price uh, uh, what the price should be for the vaccines. And when uh, members of the European Parliament criticized the Commission for their secret, what you call it, secretiveness. Yes, um, the secret deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they were told, oh, th then they heard some industry arguments that, uh, oh, we need to keep this secret uh, out of some concern that I have forgotten, but which was also ludicrous. I mean, wh why do we have politicians and parliaments who are doing things secretly? That's not okay unless uh, you're talking about military operations. Yeah, well, why would, um, in our case, why would a leading politician be worried about what a drug or pharmaceutical company would think when they're spending our taxpayer money? We're the ones paying, and we should be the first to be considered. It was kind of felt like they might have had something on them. I don't know, but what I do know is that uh, the drug industry tries to buy everyone with an influence. So political corruption organized by the drug industry is very common. We know that particularly from USA, but also from Europe and other countries. Uh, you, you never know when a politician, particularly not a leading politician, says something about the drug industry. Then you cannot know if there is a relation, a conflict of interest. I guess we just assume that there probably is one. It's the safest thing to do now and work back from there. I mean, what else can you do? Well, there often are conflicts of interest. Okay. Another um, comment, I think it was in that video I mentioned before that I picked up on from you, was the car is broken, the car won't run, let's build a new car. Because it does seem like the car is broken, doesn't it? Well, if you think about drugs, uh, uh, vaccines are also drugs, then surely the whole system is totally broken. And drug regulators don't ensure we don't have dangerous drugs that kill many of us. So the system is dysfunctional. And when that is the case, you can't repair the system. You need a new one. And I have discussed that with parliamentarians in the European Parliament and other people. And, and what we need is actually a public system where drug development is not a capitalistic enterprise, but it's done for the good of mankind, which is what healthcare should be about. And real breakthroughs in drug treatment, they don't come from the drug industry. They come from publicly funded laboratories. This has been shown again and again. So we should actually continue with that and make drug development and marketing a public enterprise, then we can also sell drugs at a, at a price that people can afford and avoid that people in the United States die from diabetes because they can't afford insul insulin, which is far too expensive. So what are the chances of building a new car? That sounds like the hardest thing to do. Of course, uh, I don't expect this to happen, but Edward Heath, a previous British prime minister, actually suggested to nationalize the British drug industry many years ago. Um, but I can only tell you that with our drugs being the third leading cause of death, this is what should be done. Yes.
Well, thank you, Peter Goodshire, for joining us on Reality Check Radio. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. I think they're already substantially in the zone, but it sort of adds clarity to the whole thing. And we'll keep an eye on what you say, and maybe we'll talk again sometime. Thank you so much, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.